0: Um, we're so very happy to have Morgan Jerkins here. Yeah! <laughs> I said to her when we were up there, I'm like, we are a great crowd. The Skylight crowd's an awesome crowd. We're, an, you know, we're a woke crowd. You know, so you know. Uh, Thank you for showing that love. Morgan Jerkins is a Harlem-based writer and contributing editor for Catapult. She graduated from Princeton University with an A.B. in comparative literature, specializing in 19th century Russian literature and post-war modern Japanese literature. Wow. And she has an MFA from um, Bennington Writing Seminars, her work has been featured in The New Yorker, Vogue, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Elle, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and Buzzfeed, among many others. We're so happy to have her here. Please welcome Morgan Jerkin. Hi,
1: everyone, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, I'm having a really good time in California I haven't been here in a while And I'm really excited to be at this bookstore Um, I was at a bookstore in St. Louis I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, Left Bank But as I was reading um, A section I saw something Moving throughout the crowd And I was like what's going on And I saw like a tail and then like a black cat Just like came and walked right past And I was like okay so when I was up there Like relaxing I saw another cat And I was like okay I got my eye on the cat Just to make sure Um, So I was going to Um, I was going to read a section about hair but um, I think I'm going to read something about street harassment instead. Um, The reason why is because um, I've been really affected by the Me Too movement I'm sure many of you have as well and um during the first half of my trip, I was talking about street harassment. I was in conversation with another black woman, I'm um, a great literary citizen, and we were talking about how difficult it is um, for a black woman to talk about street harassment, particularly if you live in a place like Harlem, where a lot of times the harassment you receive is from other from black men. Um, and I remember during Q&A time, because there's always someone in the audience that doesn't have a question, um, a, man was, a man was standing in the back and he was saying, um, you know the reason why men do that is because they don't have any home training and he kept saying it very adamantly and I was like okay like I get that but I can't really think about someone's home training when I'm thinking about my life hangs in the balance if I make the wrong move so I'm going to be reading a section about Stu Hasman and how often uh, tricky it is with these interracial differences and so I hope you like it <clears throat> An NYPD sniper tower was set up on Lennox Avenue between 129th and 130th streets in Harlem, just a short walk away from where I lived during the summer of 2016. I do not know for sure why it was there. It looms in front of the Pioneer Supermarket, which is not exactly a hub of illegal activity, besides occasional shoplifters whose pictures are posted on the left side of the glass door as you enter. Central Harlem, in general, is not that crime-heavy. I have walked home at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, unscathed. I've never been mugged or heard gunshots. I first thought that because the tower rose around the 4th of July, maybe the NYPD was preparing for something to go down during Independence Day celebrations. But no, that couldn't be it. I moved in around this time last summer and there had been no sniper tower. Its tall white presence communicated to all of us that we better not try anything or else. Sometimes a police car would be parked beside the tower and when one was not, I squinted up to try to see if there was anyone in that tower but its windows were tinted black. I wanted to ask passersby on the Street what was it doing in the neighborhood but I assumed that anyone's guess would have been as good as mine. I always said to non Harlemites that if God forbid anything happened to me I would go to the black men who sat on top of upturned crates outside the barbershop or the laundromat before I would ask the police for help Owen Sterling and Philando Castile had recently been murdered and their deaths had triggered another cruel summer of black rage that burned hotter than the heat itself. In late July of 2016, I went to an outdoor jazz concert in Prospect Park, Brooklyn. I took the two train home and got off at my usual 125th Street stop usually if I'm in a good mood or I've just finished a significant project I reward myself with food or drink a bottle of Perrier some Talenti gelato strawberries, kombucha that evening I decided I could go for some Mentos before I returned to my apartment and ended the night with a shower and Netflix. There was a deli open at 127th Street and Lenox Avenue and despite the drug addict lingering around the aisles hoping that someone could spare some change, I headed inside this was the same drug addict whom I ignored or two blocks earlier by not making eye contact and bobbing my head to the music playing through my earbuds. As I was entering the store, a man standing to the side of the entrance kept calling me sweetheart and attempting to promote a DMX concert. Everybody laughs at that part. Like, everybody laughs. Right. Right. I kept my earbuds in until I approached the counter as I needed to hear the cashier tell me how much I would have to pay for the Mentos. No sooner did I pay for the Mentos than the man called out to me and I made eye contact with him before stopping. Supposedly DMX was having some concert in Harlem and he was in charge of promoting it by passing out flyers. I do not know why he was so aggressive but nevertheless I felt sucked into continuing the conversation. I asked when the concert was and repeatedly nodded my head, feigning interest in an artist who I thought hadn't been relevant over a decade. (laughs) The man who introduced himself as Charlie wanted me to take down his number and call him in order to get tickets at a discounted price. I told him I would memorize it, but he was not satisfied with my suggestion. There was disgust in his raspy voice. Nah, see? Why you playing games, you Harlem girls or something else? You think everybody trying to hit on you and I'm trying to do business. I'm trying to make money. I mean... I'm handsome and all, but I ain't trying to hit on you on something. You out here playing games, you Harlem girls. I'm not from Harlem, I said dryly. What I'd wanted to say in that moment was, you don't know me. In retrospect, I think saying that I wasn't from Harlem was a way of evading his overconfidence about having all women in this neighborhood figured out to a science. But in that moment, I was scared. His voice was steadily increasing in volume. Anger punctuated each word, he uttered, like the strike of an organ chord. The rest of Harlem disintegrated, as if both he and I existed in a vacuum. I felt alone. What if he hits me, I thought? What if he grabs and pins me up against the outside wall of this deli? So I took out my cell phone and pretended to enter his number in my contacts directory. Luckily for me, he didn't lean over to see what I was doing. The woman who went into that deli was not the same woman who continued home. As soon as I walked to the end of the block and waited for the pedestrian light to signal that it was okay for me to proceed, I knew. Something had changed. I had been violated, but I could not name a line that had been crossed. Charlie did not follow me down the block. He did not make lewd remarks about my body. He did not rape me. He, and yet, men, whether posted up beside another deli or en route to a party, now terrified me. The pioneer supermarket, the soul food restaurants, and nail salons became two-dimensional, as if they could fall down like poker cards. A police car was parked beside the sniper tower, its red and blue lights flickering. Two male police officers, one white and the other black, leaned up against the side of the car, chatting with the ease of the old black men who crowd around the street vendors' tables covered with DVDs and VHS cassettes. The black officer inadvertently glanced at me, and I looked back at him, but said nothing. Yet I wanted him to comprehend that my eyes were compensating for my closed mouth. They were yelling for help, but if either of those officers had run to my side and asked what was the matter, I would have gazed at my arms and legs, free of any bruises or marks, looked behind me to see if Charlie had followed, which he had not, and said nothing. They would have scoffed, Thinking I was crazy, and if I had found it in me to speak up and say that there was a man harassing women at the deli on 127th and Lenox, then what? This was Harlem, after all. Such things were, for all intents and purposes, normal. I scurried home. Once I made it to my room, I dropped my purse on the floor and sat at my desk in silence, staring mindlessly at my computer screen. I wanted to grip onto the sides of my desk, fearing that I would lose balance and crash onto the ground. But at least that would have confirmed that I was still on this earth. I was on the verge of tears, and I was angry with myself for. He did not spit at me He did not call me a bitch or a hoe He did not put his hands on me He did not rape me I did not deserve to cry I had to earn the right to let my tears fall And when I looked at my unscarred body I knew that I was unworthy I repeatedly told myself that it could have been worse And that the emotional distress Is less significant than physical distress If I didn't have any scars Then my turmoil should have been something That I could easily get over It was all internal and should be kept private I've always been the kind a person who mitigates negative experiences particularly with men by telling myself that they were never that bad. I texted my male friend with whom I'd gone to the jazz concert. I secretly wanted him to fall in love with me. I told him what happened, and he replied with a sad face emoji. I was dissatisfied with his response, but what was he supposed to do? Take the subway up to where I lived, which would take two hours at that time of night, so we can go searching for Charlie? And besides, it wasn't like we were dating, so what could I have done? What could I have better uh, done to defend myself? The summer has never been kind to black people. The Charleston massacre happened in June. George Zimmerman was acquitted of killing Trayvon Martin in July. Michael Brown was murdered in August. And now, that summer, the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. I could not have lived with myself if I had reported Charlie to the police because who knows what, what they could have done. He could have gotten a simple warning, but they could also have tackled him and taken him into custody and done God knows what else. I would subject myself to a black man's harassment a thousand times over rather than watch his face hit the pavement with the police officer's weight on his back because that's not justice. That is a betrayal. When I think about how Harlem streets are a place of conversation, economy, and community, I start to second guess myself. Maybe the only goods that Charlie was trying to sell were tickets to a DMX concert. Maybe what he wanted was only money. Maybe I misjudged his calling me sweetheart as patronizing when he really was just trying to be nice because he did not know my name. Maybe I was being conceited. Maybe I cried because I was still getting used to the city environment, not because I thought he was going to hurt me. The more excuses I made for him the less trusting I became of my body and my own instincts and that sniper tower it is still there I do not acknowledge it now when I walk by. I keep my head low and my headphones nestled against my ears. I walk in a fashion similar to that of all the other black women with whom I cross paths every night as I return to my apartment. I wonder what kind of secrets they are holding in their bodies, what kind of experiences they have buried to protect someone else at their own expense, whom they could run to for help. Thank you. So, that, chap- well, that section was uh, from one of the hardest essays I've ever written. Um, it's from a chapter called A Hunger for Men's Eyes. And I wanted to end on that note because I wanted to talk about secrets. Um, to be honest with you, I never thought that I was going to be a nonfiction writer. Um, I started writing uh, when I was 14 years old after being bullied every day. If you read the book, I mention it. Um, and I went, to MF, I went to an MFA program, and my, and my discipline was fiction. Um, but I got my start in writing professionally um, in 2014. So during that time, that was um, when editors were hungry for personal essays by women. And also, the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. And editors were looking around the newsroom say, hey, we don't see any black or brown people in here, so we have to go outwards to find people to write about these issues that have finally well, unfortunately, bubbled up to the surface. So I found myself right in the middle of that, writing personal essays about myself and also writing about police brutality. Um, And that's how I started to build up my portfolio. And um, I met my agent um, a year later after she she found out how much I was doing and she asked me if I wanted to write um, an essay collection about Black womanhood, black girlhood, intersectional feminism. Um, And I was nervous about it um, because, you know, I grew up in a very tight knit Christian community. The word feminism was a pejorative. Um, It meant that you wanted to overtake the man, Um, it meant that you were too much, too. Fill in the blank in every sense of the word, um, and I started to become a feminist when I was in college. Um, so, I was worried about that. And you know, when you're writing an essay collection or when you're trying to pitch an essay collection, you have to write something called a book proposal. And one of the components of a book proposal is something called comp titles, where you have to list um, books that your work can be compared to, books that have sold to, right? So. The first person I thought of was uh, Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. That was the first essay collection that I had read by a black woman. And then I was like, okay, I got that one down. And I was like, okay, the last that's been published in the last 10 years, or five, 10 years. And I was like, "Mm, black women essay collections in the last five years. And then my agent was like, okay, try black people. And I was like, okay. (laughs) I was like, okay, 10 IC is between the world and me. And I was like, Ooh. and then she was like okay people of color and I was like okay Mindy Kaling <laughs> and then I just and, and, and then I realized like as I was creating the comp title list I was like okay maybe this book can be necessary um, or should be um, and so luckily it worked out um, I have had a phenomenal run with this already um, just seeing is how Roxanne blurred my book um, and you know being published under the same imprint that published Bad Feminists. Um, but even writing this was um, not only critically challenging but emotionally challenging. Because as I mentioned about this whole theme of secrets, there are so many things that black women talk about that we don't even let black men know about. Um, there's these sacred spaces that I, that I held dear. Um, whether it's like the kitchen table in my mother's house or my auntie's back seat after Sunday church service where these really tight-knit circles that are even impenetrable to men. Um, and I wanted to talk about it because I was so used to um, reading about the interiorities of white women and I thought why can't someone read the interiorities of one black girl one black woman Um, but I was worried because I thought that I was piercing a bubble and violating these sacred spaces that I'd navigated my entire life Um, and it was a risk that I took. Um, creating a story that not only has me as the narrator with cultural commentary, co- commentator, giving cultural commentary, but also as the protagonist. And the protagonist has to go through things. And I think you know, we live in a, in a time period where everybody's trying to be woke quickly. Um, ever since the the end the, the, the election or the apocalypse, depending on your uh, <laughs> interpretation of that night. Um, everybody's trying to be woke. They're trying to get there to that, I don't even know what you call it, that, that moment of mental clarity about all these uh, information about marginalized communities. And what I wanted to show with this book, that even if I am a member of a marginalized community, multiple, like, wokeness is not a linear path. Consciousness is not a linear path. It's full of so many jagged roads, so many false starts. And so when I was writing the book, particularly the first chapter, where I'm talking about wanting to be a white cheerleader and talking about the ways in which my self-hatred as a black girl produced horrible um, thoughts about myself and also the way I looked at other black girls I felt like I had to show readers that I had to show all of you that because if not then I'm giving you the sanitized picture and that's a disservice you know but it is hard because like I said you know you're you're in a time period now where everyone's trying to be woke and knowledgeable and to really say like as a black girl I did not know what black girl magic was at a certain point I did not know my own strength and to show that in all of its sheer honesty was something that I was worried about. Um, but I felt like I had to do it anyway. Um, and so there's so many other themes in the book that were so hard to get out. Whether it was like interracial differences between black men and women. the You know, the, the uh, relationship between my sexuality and my faith. Um, dating experiences. Horrible dating experiences. Very very embarrassing. <laughs> um, but again, it was like I've always stood by the thought process that if something is, if you're afraid to write something, that means you have to write it. Um, And so, yeah. And also, I'm going to cover my own book. (laughs) Um, Another thing I didn't expect to happen either. Because my parents were, they said to me, you should be on the cover of your own book. And I told them, I'm not going to be on the cover of my own book because I'm not like Janet Mock. Like, I don't have that profile. But they said, you know, just ask. Um, And I asked them, and 30 minutes later, they were like, go for it. And so I took the inspiration from um, a version of Zora Neale Hurston's *Their Eyes of Watching God that Harper Perennial Classics um, published. And it's this image of a woman who's staring um, with her eyes closed. You know, Well, sorry, not staring with her eyes closed. Her eyes are closed. She looks like she's either like pensive or in pain, you just don't know. Um, and I wanted to recreate that. Um, and it feels, I mean, it's, it's very, it, I mean, when I came into the store and I saw like, all, like my face on the back cover. Like, it still is an interesting experience to see that. Um, But it's also a way to show you how intimate this collection is. There's going to be moments where I'm not seen, I suppose, depending on your outlook, in the best light. There's a lot of messiness. Oftentimes, contradictions. But I hope that when people read this essay collection, they will give me the generosity of continuing to read until the end and see that even though this book is finished, you know, after page 272, that it's still irresolute. And that's even how I pitched it because I'm still learning. Um, And people always mention how young I am. Yes, I am. Um, And I'm still learning and adding layers to things that I've already referenced in the past. Um, But also paying homage, I suppose, to those past selves that have got me to this point. Um, So yeah, I, I talk a lot. I'm a Gemini, so I can keep talking. But... I would love to hear from all of you. There's so many of you. It's really great to see. Uh, if you want to talk about the book, publishing, black women writing, feminism, men, whatever you want. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been thinking about And I was to this formal. Mm hmm hmm So, we're looking at alpha male's right? hmm Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I got into writing through fiction, so I got into writing as a way to hide. Um. And luckily I had very astute editors who knew when I was writing about my surgery, writing about street harassment that, you know, they could tell when in the text when I was psychologically cutting corners. That they can tell like you're you're trying to skip ahead too much, you need to go back. And so it's that constant dialogue as I'm recounting these memories to stay in it. Because you know, when you're going back to painful memories, and maybe I'm just speaking for me, you want to get over it quickly. You want to gloss over, it. and oftentimes you bury it because you're not trying to process, you're just trying to get on with your day. But I had to go back and I had to stay there. So yeah, like it it, it often felt dangerous to me me because I had to tell myself like a part of writing publicly is once it's out of your hands out of your hands you have to give up that control and people can interpret it in any way that they want to but yeah like it, it can often feel dangerous it can also feel pretty freaking good when you hear other women like yourself who like you know thank you or just seeing people in the audience and you like saying like okay my words have found certain people and that's all that matters yeah there. thank you about, you know, beyond being isolated from the cheerleaders in their whiteness, you know, like, and we were isolated in your education as one of people of color in those intercollegiate like, classes. Mm-hmm. And when you got to Princeton and met other people of color who
0: had been in that same situation, did you experience relief or was that, that another continued struggle given the conservatism? That Old boys
1: club that Princeton is that I know like a lot of people experience who aren't from a. Yeah, um, I think it was a relief to find other people that say like, "Hey, I go to these things." I think intellectually, I didn't really care about the old boys club. It was only socially. Like, when I couldn't rely on my intellect so much, and I had to like try to go to a party, and then I was worried about that. I was so obsessed with like men and what they thought about me, and that it really tired me out. But I think, um, in terms of like being the only one in certain, cl- by that time I was so used to it. Like when my mom would come to visit me, we would go to events. She'd be like count how many black people, like we would, it would almost be facetious, but we just we, we already at that point you're conditioned that you're not going to see as many of you as you want. But then when you see a whole bunch of black women from all across the diaspora who have that feeling too, you start to create these connections and these bonds and these mentorships. So it helped, but also socially, like we all were in a struggle, my friends. We were struggling. Oh, I think I saw you. idea. I've talked about kind of the intersection of fiction and non fiction. Where are you at with your non fiction and how did the fiction thing kind of impact your non fiction? Yeah, I think fiction um, impacted my nonfiction the way that I describe a scene um, so when I'm talking about Harlem and I'm telling you that the Pioneer Supermarket was there this is what the Sniper Tower was, this is the time of night um, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't know how important it is to establish scenery for people um, to get them really submerged into the moment but I think non-fiction helps me now with fiction because I'm trying to sound more human-like and what I mean by that is you know when you when you're in the academy so much of you know, your language has to be so overwrought. Like, you use a hundred words to describe one thing. So now it's like I'm trying to keep reorienting my mind and telling myself, like, you can say something really bluntly and it can still be beautiful. Beauty doesn't just come from elaborate words. So it's that it's that interaction of like, establishing a scene but also making sure that you are not establishing it so much that you just stifle the momentum. You got to keep it going. You have to let the audience know that something's coming. So, yeah. Did you have a
0: Mm-hmm. That's what we're all about Do
1: you worry that um, this that what we're living right now is happening to that and a time where my mom is working with them to go but then those and up again, and not the, the, the beginning, the beginning is that worry you about yeah. I think until we don't until we have a reckoning with history and its roots, we're going to keep going through this again. Like when when Trump was elected, people were like, how did this happen? And we're like I mean, and I hate it when people are like, now more than ever, it's like, no, it should have been that way, right? So if we don't have, if people aren't feeling the need to be educated about the, the legacy, for example, of slavery in this country, right, and how it pertains to our conceptions of whiteness and blackness and wealth, right, and meritocracy, which is a myth, by the way, um, then we're going to keep having these issues, but I think what makes this moment particularly unique is the internet, right? So, I made my career through the internet. I'm a quintessential millennial. I found my editor through the internet, through Twitter. I found my agent through Twitter. That's how I found editor's contacts, all through Twitter. What I will say though is like, a lot of these essays in this book I could not have written for the internet. Because it's so easy to make a snap judgment. And when you're only allotted for example 2,500 words or sometimes only 1,000 words, how could you how can you give yourself the sensitivity to show how you pull out these thoughts? And how do you know somebody else who has probably probably like five to ten other tabs open to give you the, the time to do that as well? At least when you buy a book, you made an investment. You purchased it, right? It's not the same with the internet. So what my issue is, is that I'm I'm trying to make sure that nuance doesn't get lost. Because it's so easy for nuance to get lost on the internet. It's so easy for people to make snap judgments. And that's the thing I'm I'm worried about. Is that you're going to have some writers who aren't as woke. Or they get things wrong. But if we're so quick to cancel them or drag them. Then we not only... You know, impede them personally, but also creatively. So, so that's the one thing I'm worried about. Is just like, how do we keep working out these ideas and shed the mask and say, hey, I really don't know much about this. If it seems like because we're living in such a fever pitch moment where people's lives are as actually at risk, we don't have time. And who's going to be that person to say, hey, let me help you catch up? You know what I mean? So that's the thing I'm most worried about. You
0: talk a lot about the need for question of essays like yours, and I think it's especially important because we're young and we're doing amazing things for a lot of women on the production. So I'm curious kind of what some of your favorite reactions have been to the book from young girls, whether like just on tour or right
1: when it came out best reactions I've had is through Instagram like people will make me a part of their Instagram stories so I'll be like who is this person contacting me Then it's like somebody's like has a picture of my book next to their cat or their dog or near like their bathtub and I'm like yay so that's always good um sometimes just like some people contacting me on Twitter you know just telling me you know thank you for being so courageous um and that's the best thing for me. It's like I don't honestly want everybody to agree with me because if you don't, if you, if everyone agrees with me on everything, then that means I'm not pushing the envelope. And that that's not to say that I'm I'm trying to be a provocateur. But what I am trying to tell you that is that not everything can be just a quick yes or no. We don't live in binaries like that as human beings. So like I don't. So someone telling me that I'm courageous, another black woman telling me that I'm courageous, feels really good. Those that's usually the remarks that I get
0: you heard from
1: your fellow uh, Prince and Grand Michelle Obama? No! Oh my God! You're the second. You're the second person who asked me that, and I'm like, look, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> I hope she reads it. That would be great. I really hope. so. I wrote a letter in the book um, to Michelle Obama. Um, it was one of my favorite chapters. So I hope so. I hope so. Not yet. Oh, they're yeah, not yet. Not yet. Anything else? Honestly, to not make snap judgments or to think that my experience erases theirs. Oftentimes, you know, as a black woman, right, if I say something that happened to me, there might be a person, a a white woman, who, granted, has the best intentions, but she might say, well, that happens to me too. And what I always want to say, is, what I'm saying is it doesn't erase what you're going through, but it does add another layer when you think about race and gender. So what I hope is that for people who do not identify as women or black or even as people of color is that they read these experiences and they don't just make snap judgments and say oh well that's absurd or that couldn't be it but to understand that everything has a root and that I don't live in a vacuum and to not pathologize my thinking either and just think, well, she's crazy or all of that. Because again, I don't live in a vacuum. So that's the only thing I just hope is that when people read these experiences, they don't have to always agree, but that they know that this is somebody's experience, someone who is in the world, and whatever she's going through does not erase the intensity of what I went through, but it should add to the conversations of these ongoing dialogues that we're having about feminism. Yeah, up in the back. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm what what else you oh, for it. I say collections by women. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, I got a list. Um, so, you can read Hunger by Roxane Gay. Um, you can read um, Shrill by Lindy West. Um, you can read I would say Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. Her birthday was just on the 18th. I would say um, The Rules Do Not Apply by Ariel Levy. L-E-V-I. Um, what else? I would read Pearl Cleach. C-L-E E-A-G-E, her work um, very well known black writer, what else would I read I think that's, uh, well there's a, an uh, anthology of, of essays about rape culture called Not That Bad, that's going to be edited by Roxane Gay as well, so I would say to check that out, um, and I don't know when this book is coming out, but um, there's another writer, her name is Morgan Parker she's going to be writing about mental health and black womanhood, so be on the lookout for that, I'm really excited for that one so, yeah Um, Hunger for Men's Eyes was the hardest one because I was writing about my sexuality, I was writing about my faith, I was writing about the ways in which I got these signals that black women were undesirable and the way that that played out in my dating experiences. And I think it was hard for me because one, I was like, my mother's going to be reading this, right? <laughs> and then, um, two, I was afraid of being undesirable again, by owning up to my truth, some guy would like read the book and be like, oh my God, I would never date this person. You know, I don't care about that now. I was like, oh God, I'm never going to get a date after I, I write this essay. But I think what it taught me was that I'm very strong. I think that's the thing. I was like, you know, it may have hurt to do this and you're afraid, but you... Have to reclaim the shame that someone taught you about yourself. Like you can't take my power away from me if I own up to these experiences. So I give that shame back to you. You see what I mean? So I think for me it was like a way of reclaiming certain things that I, I, I I've shamed myself, believing they should be shameful, um, and also learn how to be kinder to myself because it's interesting after I. Um, Finished the final draft, and that was the last essay I wanted to work on because of how how big it was. Um, I cried. Um, And I didn't know why I was crying, because I should have been happy. I was like, oh my gosh, my final draft is done. You know, the the manuscript's going to be bound, it's going to be sent to people. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was like, you know, you're you're mourning your former selves. That's That's what's going on. You're mourning that girl who you once were, who just yearned to be loved by any means necessary. And so when I think about that chapter, I'm like, oh my gosh, like my heart hurts for who that girl was at that time, but... She's still inside, like, it's still inside me. That's really weird. But she, she's still a part of me, and I had to be her to get here. And now I'm paying honor to her by telling you about it rather than hiding. So I think it just realized, it made me realize how strong I am and how, even though it hurts, it was an act of love to myself and my history. Uh, you talked a lot about telling secrets. Uh, so I am interested to know did you actually put any on yourself, or were you? Yeah, so my remember. So a lot of the people that I talk about in the book, like specifically the men I dated, I don't talk to them anymore. Um, like I tried to. Like people talk about how much my mom is such a big part, and I'm like, she actually wasn't. Like I don't tell you, you know, too much about our relationship. I tell you certain interactions, but like to protect her. Or a lot of my friends that I have now, I don't talk about them at all because they're still in my life. Um, you know, my dad, for example, was like, you know, I don't talk too much about you, and then I'm like, um, because I need to talk about you, and I'm like. Um so I not can't talk about it now. Um, so there were certain badges I was like I'm not going to talk about friends that I'm if like I have right now, any relationships that I have, um, you know, certain family members. It's just just like it's not my thing to go into that. I need to center it on me because once you get into telling too much of other people, you're trying to speak for them and you're reinforcing that type of erasure by trying to put words into their mouth, you know? So Anything else? Thank you. how did you your I didn't have a life. Um, I I I, no, I did not. It's very hard because people ask me like, "What was your self care?" That's another buzzword, self care. What was your self care when you were writing this book? I didn't have one. That was the truth. Like I woke up at seven o'clock in the morning, started writing at seven thirty, and I would not move from my bed until I wrote at least fifteen hundred to two thousand words. I, it didn't matter if I was hungry, or if I had to use the bathroom. I just I, that's how I treated myself. Um, and honestly, there are certain moments in my freelance career where I don't know how I did it. Like I don't know. Like when I first moved to New York. I was in my MFA program. That means I had to turn in 20 pages of work every month as well as read three books in a month and do annotations for that. Not only that, but I was uh, teaching first generation Chinese American kids in Brooklyn, so it was a two hour commute every day. Then I also had to freelance. Then I was also working on this book proposal. So I don't know how I held it together um, for all of that. I think it was a matter of, you know, I freelanced because I loved what I was doing and it was easy for me to think of ideas. Um, and also help to pay rent. So that's also a good motivation, especially when you live in New York City. Um, But yeah, it was the type of thing where when I was actually writing the book there was no self-care ritual in place. I just went. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's not healthy, but... I gotta be honest, I just started doing self-care like last year, <laughs> so I feel much better. I fit into this dress, it's working out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything else? let to wrap up? I'll,
0: I'll ask the last question. Okay. I'm curious to know how you structured your essays um, did you choose like, the, most, the most intense ones first? Or did you, did you space it out? How did you
1: choose My editor made the cheerleading essay first. I did not want it to be first. I thought it was too intense. I was like, can we be in the middle? Like, like, like a roller coaster. Like lead people up to the ascent first. <laughs> and then she was telling me, she was like, no, it needs to be the first one. Because that, first of all, you're the youngest there. And you have to show that messy beginning. It can't go in the middle. So she helped me structure it. It was just me like thinking of ideas and saying, okay, I want to write about this, but it was my editor who really was the one that said, we need to show some type of progression um, and here's how we're going to structure it. Um, and certain essays were sort of combined um, I guess for a more illuminating effect. Uh, that sounds like a makeup tutorial. Sorry, I was <laughs> but it's like for more of a bigger effect. Um, others were like, like whole chapters were like, yeah, like Put together paragraphs were deleted, things like that. And I love how the way, even when I'm reading it now, like it feels like it folds, like it folds and it opens up, um, depending on which chapters you read. So yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.